Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Days and Hours in a Garden. The garden described in this story sounds quite magical and is set in 1800s England. Written by EVB and published in 1896. I hope you enjoy this story. My name is Teddy and I am to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. Joanna Holding, your email was extremely kind and I'm glad you enjoy this style of the podcast. Shannon Hayes, Thank you for your message through the website and for suggestions on future episodes. I also heard from several listeners on Instagram. Matt Dake, thank you for listening every night. Autumn Sladen, I apologize that you now cannot sleep without the podcast, but don't worry. I will continue to bring out more episodes for you to get the rest that you need. James Clark, I'm glad the podcast helps you doze off when feeling wired. And finally, thank you to Anonymous Audible Listener for your kind review on the Audible US website. I'm glad you think the podcast has the right level of boring. As always, a special thank you to everybody who supports the podcast on Patreon or Anchor. The podcast is completely free, and it's thanks to listeners like you that allows me to bring out more episodes for those who need them. If you find the podcast beneficial, another way to say thank you is to leave a comment in your podcast player of choice, as well as a review if you have the time. You're also welcome to share the podcast with a friend who may also need a good night's rest. If you would like, you can also say hello at boytosleep.com where you can support the podcast or simply just say hello. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Boy to Sleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Days and Hours in a Garden by E. V. B. To Richard Cavendish Boyle, whose love for nature and for art years had not chilled nor trouble changed. These records of our garden were inscribed by E. V. B. in 1884.
Preface If for a sixth reprint of days and hours in a garden, a new preface was deemed advisable, still more so, perhaps, should there be something new prefixed to the seventh edition, although, indeed, it contains nothing that in any sense is new. Neither new words nor any new vignettes appear therein. Nevertheless, we venture to hope that perhaps new readers may be found. Since the last edition was published, some three years have come and gone, with their world-old role of seasons and their burden of inevitable change. The garden has three times slept beneath the rains and the snows of winter, and has awakened in spring with the birds and the bees. Meanwhile, the shrubs are taller and larger, and the trees have extended their roots and stretched out their branches over lawns and gravel paths. And the summer shade, so coveted in other days, has broadened while on the other hand, it has become more hard to maintain. In their wanted brilliancy, our borders and flowerful closes. The axe and the pruning knife have been busy during the winter months, and many a fine laurel in all its wealth of glossy green, has been laid low, and with you and the full foliage Phileria, and more than one tall Deodara, become a burned sacrifice to Apollo's sunny ray. For the south sunshine must be let in, no matter what the cost, in certain ways, the garden may be said to suffer change, and chiefly when the grace and softly rounded loveliness of various evergreens which do not bear the shears, Cryptomeria elegans, red cedar, and the like, after a course of years, begins to wane. Even to the upward-pointing cypress, Middle life in an English garden is not becoming, and as the larger trees increase in size, so the overshadowed lawns diminish, and thus the slower progress of some of our trees has given place to a rapid growth, which bids fair to overstep all bounds of such limited space as ours. The Douglas fir and the branching cedar of Lebanon keep growing into one another, while Exelsa touches them both and wants to reach across to the clump of yew and Labanum. Their near neighbour, the Sequoia, already rises to the height of fifty feet and measures over nine feet round at some two feet from the ground. Nordmaniana alone, most beautiful of all, through having five times lost his leader, is forced to greater moderation. Still, 
although no future of green maturity can ever compensate the earlier expectant delight of watching our young tree's youth. All is not lost, for the pleasures carried away by time, time itself replaces by others to the full as sweet. It may be that favourite plants become established and yield a larger harvest of beauty, or that deep laid plans ripen into bright perfection, while a thousand garden joys arise fresh each year, nay, well nigh every day. As to the living frequenters of the garden, whose presence there for the most part enhances our enjoyment of it, the tomteats, nunhatches are as busy with the coconuts which hang for their use all winter, from the rose arches as the mice and the sparrows are with the crocuses. The white pigeons still circle in the air and settle upon the gables or preen their feathers in the sunshine amongst the yellow stone crop. At the base of the old grey pillar in the panther, the swallows return year by year to their nests within the porch but the faithful satin-coated collie lies still forever under the turf by the ivied wall, and the earth lies heavy on his noble head. For these thirteen summers past, he had taken his pleasure in the garden, had chased marauding cats, or bounded after apples with any playfellow at the hour while his glad bark rang again, or as in later days, had gravely followed the steps of his mistress about the walks, or rolled upon the grass, or watched with lazy but unfailing interest in his friend the gardener at work. Four words graven on a little white marble tablet that shines amidst the dark ivy leaves on the wall record his name and character. Already the snowdrops are giving away before impatient hepaticus and primroses. The bare elms are thickening with purple and we begin to count the gentian buds. Everywhere, nature repairs herself in ceaseless round. Only in our human lives some vacant spots there may be, where the grass will not grow green again. Chapter 1 October 17, 1882 The Garden's Story it is only 11 years old, though the place itself is an old place. An old place without a history, for scarce a record remains of it anywhere that we have ever found. Its name occurs on a headstone in the parish churchyard, and on one or two monuments within the chancel of the parish church. There is brief mention of it in Evelyn's diary. It is there described as a very pretty seat in the forest, 
On a flat, with gardens exquisitely kept, though large, And the house, a staunch good old building. It seems George Evelyn, the author's cousin, Was amongst the many who had lived here once. At that time, eighty acres of wood surrounded the house, where now there lies a treeless stretch of flat cornfields. Quite near, across the road, are the ruins of an ancient nunnery. Our meadow under the high convent wall is called the Walk Meadow, because here the nuns used to walk. The great walnut tree which they may possibly have known, only died after we came. It was cut down for firewood, and its hollows were full of big chestnut-coloured rat bats, very fierce and strong. At that time also, white owls lived in the ruins, and used to come floating over the lawn at twilight, until the days of gun licenses, since when they have disappeared. Dim legends surround the place, but nothing clear or certain is known, or even said. And there is not a ghost anywhere. All we know is, that since taking possession, wherever a hole is dug in the garden to plant a tree... The spade is sure to strike against some old brick foundation of such firm construction that they have to use the pick to break it up. Bones of large dogs are also found all about the place whenever the ground is broken. Remains of the watchdogs or hunting dogs of the olden time, also quaintly shaped tobacco pipes, I know of nothing to support the tradition that monks abode here once. There were signs of an upstairs room having at some remote time been used as a chapel. A piscina in the wall and a narrow lancet window having been found and destroyed when the house was in the builder's hands eleven years ago. Broken arches also, and mouldings in chalk and stone, were dug up out of the foundations of some outhouses at the same time. They say there is an underground passage between the abbey and the house, but we do not believe it, and we do not believe in the murder of a monk for his money said to have been committed by a nun in the upper room, now a guest chamber. Such vague traditions are sure to hang around old walls, like mists about a damp meadow. Very distinct, however, and carved in no vague characters, are certain initials and dates still visible on the stems of the trees in the Lime Avenue. For in old times, when the trees are bare, and the western sky is bright, you can see them quite plainly. Large capital letters, often a pair, 
enclosed in a large heart with the date. The dates run from 1668 on to late in 1700. Those old village lovers must have had sharp pen knives which cut deep. They and their names have long passed away and been forgotten, but for so much as is traced in the living bark, these limes have proved as good as any marble monument, much better than the long wooden rails which are still in fashion hereabouts. Since the place was ours, this short avenue of twenty-four trees has been taken in from the public road, and now the limes give us cool shade and fragrance, and many midges in the hot summer days. I fear there is nothing more to be discovered about the past history of the house than we now know already. We must be content and follow as we best may George Herbert's concise admonition. When you chance for to find an old house to your mind, be good to the poor as God gives you store. We have had the great pleasure of making the garden. The feature of the place was and is two symmetrically planted groups of magnificent elms in the park field, in which every season we hope the rooks will build. There was everything to be done in the garden, to which these elms form a background. We found hardly any flowers, a large square lawn laid out in beds, with unsatisfactory turf and shrubberies beyond a long, broad terrace walk. Old brick walls with stone balls on the corners, two or three old wrought iron gates in the wrong places, dabs of kitchen, garden and potato plots, stable yard and carriage entrance occupying the whole south front, with a few pleasant trees, a young Wellingtonia, a stone pine, a Venetian sumac, and a very large red chestnut, from a seed brought from Spain in the waistcoat pocket of one of our predecessors here fifty years ago, and said to be the first of the kind raised in England, such was our new playground in 1871. Here we brought a skilful gardener, possessed of a common sense and uncommon good taste. Can one say much more in a few words? And aided by our own unscientific but exceeding love of flowers and gardening, we set to work at once. These gardens on a flat are transformed. There are now close-trimmed yew hedges, some of those first planted being 8 feet 6 inches high, and a nearly 3 feet through, while others are kept low and square. There are yews cut in pyramids and buttresses against the walls, and use in every stage of natural growth. I love the English yew, 
with its thousand years of gloom, an age that ours, however, have not yet attained. The Wellingtonia, planted in 1866, has shot up to over 40 feet high, and far outgrown its youthful jack-in-the-green look. The stone pine, alas, has split in two, and been propped up and although half-killed since by frost, it yet bears a yearly harvest of fine cones, chiefly collected for use as fire revivers, though the seeds ripen for sowing or eating. The borders are filled with the dearest old-fashioned plants. The main entrance is removed to the north side. The stable yard is removed also, and instead thereof are turf and straight walks, and a sundial and a parterre for bedding out things. The sole plot allowed here for scarlet palagoniums and the like. In this parterre occurs the only foliage plant we tolerate, a deep crimson velvet-leaved coleus, the centre bed is a raised square of yellow stone crop and little white harebells, with an old stone pedestal found in a stonemason's yard, bearing a leaden inscription to Deborah, surmounted by a ball on which the white pigeons picturesquely perch. There are green walks between yew hedges and flower borders, beech hedges and a long green tunnel, the Alley Verte, so named in remembrance of a bow walk in an old family place, no longer in existence. There are nooks and corners and a grand, well-shaded tennis lawn and a crown of all there is the fantasy. This is a tiny plantation in the field. I mean the park, date 1874, connected with the garden by a turf walk, with a breadth of flowers and young evergreen trees intermixed on either hand. Here, all of my most favourite flowers grow in wild profusion, the turf walk is lost after a break of golden yew in a little wood. A few paces round, just large enough for the birds to build in, and with room for half a dozen wild hyacinths and a dozen primroses under the trees, with moss, wood sorrel, and white and puce-coloured periwinkles, and many a wild thing meant to encourage the delusion of a savage wild. I am afraid I never can be quite serious about a garden. I always am inclined to find delight in fancies and reminiscences of a child's garden, and the desire to get everything into it if I could. This fantasy was a dream of delight during the past summer. From April, when a nightingale possessed in song 
the half-hidden entrance under the low, embowering elm branches, and Syringia, though all the fairy days and months up to quite lately. Yes, even last week, it was fragrant with a mignonette and ragged jack. I mean that alpine pink Deanthus plumarius, gay with yellow zinnias and blue salvia and rich luxuriance, with a host of smaller, less showy things, with bunches of crimson roses and pink La France blooming out from a perfect mist of white and pinkish Japan anemones white sweet peas and a few broad sunflowers towering at the back, their great stems coruscating all over with stars of gold, and here their clusters of purple clematis leaning sadly down from a stick and leaf and dead wiry stalks, or turning from their weak embrace of some red-brown cryptomeria elegans, even last week, the borders throughout the garden looked filled and cheerful, brilliant with scarlet lobelia and tall deep red floxes, and bushes of blue-leaved starry marguerites, and the three varieties of Japan anemone, with strange orange tigridius and oratium lilies and ladies' pink cushion. Out near the carriage drive are goldenrod and crimsoned patches of azalea, and a second blow of light and self-sown Himalayan poppies. In one narrow bit of south border, one finds that pretty blue daisy, such an odd, pretty little thing. I remember a bed of it in the garden of my childhood, and I possess a portrait of it, done for me by my mother, and then never met with again until a year or two ago, when unexpectedly it looked up at me, somewhere in a remote country churchyard, I am afraid our present stock comes from that very plant. Until now, the long border of many-coloured verbenas was still rather happy, and the three east gables of the house were all aflame, with Virginian creeper. But two days of rain spoilt us entirely, the variegated maple slipped its white garment all at once in the night, causing a melancholy gap. In the kitchen garden, a bright red rose or two remains, but along the east border, the half-blown buds are rotted away. In the centre of one drenched pink bloom, I saw a poor drone, drowned as he sat idly there, Small black-headed titmice are jerking about among the tallest rose trees. Insect hunting and still tinier wrens flit here and there, bent on the same quest. Great spotted missile thrushes are now haunting the pillyus, 
and beginning to taste the luscious banquet just ready for them. While thus perched amongst the sweet scarlet berries and dark foliage, the thrushes always bring to one's mind a design in old tapestry. And this reminds me of the good and abundant fruit fest we have ourselves enjoyed this season. Strawberries and raspberries were not much, but such gooseberries, apricots and nectarines. Peaches, plenty enough, but no flavour. Figs, enough to satisfy even our greediness. Though we have but one tree on a west wall. Pears, especially Louise Bonn, first rate and plenty. Apples, a small crop but sufficient. Wood strawberries have been ripening under the windows till within the last few days. I planted them there for the sake of the delicious smell of the leaves when decaying. A smell said to be perceptible only to the happy few. Nuts, filberts and Kentish cobs were plentiful, but we were only allowed a few dishes of them. A large number of nut thatches settled in the garden as soon as the nuts were ripe. They nipped them off and carrying them to the old acacia tree, which stands conveniently near, stuck them in the rough bark and cracked them at their ease or rather punched holes in them. The acacia's trunk at one time quite bristled over with the empty nutshells, while the husks lay at the roots. The fun of watching these busy thieves at work more than made up for the loss of nuts. We had a great abundance of large green and yellow wall plums, also a fair quantity of purple, of sweet cherries and less gathered rather unripe, my dear blackbirds and starlings never leave us many. But there were a good lot of morellos, they don't care a bit for them. Whilst on the subject of fruit, let me say that never a shot is fired in the garden unless to destroy weasels. Our garden's sacred round is free to every bird that flies. The delight of seeing them and of hearing their music compensates to the full any ravages they may indulge in. Thanks to netting without a stint and our gardener's incomparable patience and long-suffering, I enjoy the garden and my birds in peace. And if they ever do any harm, we never know it. Fruit and green peas never fail us. Here is a sunny morning, and the cows are whisking their tails under the elms, as if it were July, but indeed the last lingering trace of summer has vanished. The garden is in ruins, and already the red breast is singing, Songs of Triumph. The ruin is complete and cleared away too. 
Yet there is consolation and something very comfortable in the neatness of the dug borders and the beds made up for the winter. The symmetrically banked up salary, crested with the richest green in the kitchen garden, rather takes my fancy. So also does the fine bit of colour in some huge heaps of dead leaves that I see already stored in the rubbish yard. The dead leaves have to be swept away from lawn and garden walks, but I believe we do not consider any except those of beech and oak to be of much service. It is my hearsay that leaves do not fail until the goodness of them has decayed. They are of use, however, when left to cover the ground above tender roots. In the fantasie, the earthy bed can scarcely be seen. So close lies this warm counterpane of the leaves. The great elms of the greyest days now make sunshine of their own. Their lofty breadths of yellow gold tower among the zone of garden trees. When the sun illumines them and the light winds pass, it is a dream to watch the glittering fall of autumn leaves. The ancient times return, and Jove once more showers gold around some sleeping Danae. During the first days of the month, the partner was done, tulips put in, and a lot of crocuses in double row. In a few beds, the dwarf evergreens, which had been removed for the summer, are planted in again, just to make the partner's emptiness look less cheerless from the dining room windows. Between these small evergreen bushes in their season will come up spikes of hyacinths of varied hue, I do not care for a whole bed of hyacinths or tulips. They give me little real pleasure unless the colours be mixed. One chief charm of a garden, I think, depends on surprise. There is a kind of dullness in tulips and hyacinths, sorted and coming up all in one size and colour. I love to watch the close-folded tulip bud rising higher and higher daily, almost hourly from its brown bed, and never to be quite certain of the colour that is to be, till one morning I find the rose or golden or ruby cup in all its finished beauty, perhaps not at all what was expected. And then, amid these splendours, will suddenly appear one shorter or taller than the rest, of the purest, rarest white. How that white tulip, coming as it were by chance, is valued, and so again this year a mixed lot are planted. There was a time when we had only one tulip in all the garden, I used to look for it regularly in a certain shady border under a laburnum tree, 
an old-fashioned dull purple and white striped flower, but it never failed to show at the very end of every season. I had a regard for the tulip, and last summer it was a disappointment vainly to wait for its appearance in the accustomed spot. Many there were of its kind, surpassing in it loveliness, but then they were not the same. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this lovely story about gardens. I also hope that it's helped you get a little drowsy and ready for sleep. In the meantime, until next time, I'll be bringing you a new episode very soon. Good night.